Yeah, so apparently there's a game going on. How many of you are, are pulling for the Patriots? Yeah, three of you. How many of you are pulling for the Falcons? Wow, much better. Everyone hates the Patriots. And how many of you could not possibly care less? Yeah, the could care less crowd wins every year when we do this little poll. Um, but how many of you are glad for the food and stuff you're going to have today? And Yes, that's right. Okay, so it's not all bad. So um, let me just ask you this show of hands. If, if you, you're going to see the game today, but you generally do not watch football, raise your hand if you're not a football watcher. Okay, so it is my job this morning to fill you in just so you'll be ready for the big game. So you need to know a little bit of what happened. It's the New England Patriots are playing the Atlanta Falcons. These teams are both amazing. The Falcons are the best offense in football. The Patriots are the best defense in football. It's been an incredible thing coming up to this point. Both teams have had these amazing moments this season that get them to this place. In fact, I'm going to show you a couple of the key highlights. This one for the Patriots, you, you probably will never forget this one. Remember this? This was that huddle they had that one time. It was really good. It was a really important huddle. It turns out that the other team also has had some great moments. Remember this huddle? You probably can't forget this. This was the huddle where the Falcons were in their red jerseys. Remember this one? And then later, there's another one of the Patriots in red jerseys. So apparently you can wear red jerseys and a huddle no matter which team you're on. And then there's another one here. Oh, look, it's a huddle. It's another huddle. You're saying, wow, this is fantastic. Those are the important moments. This is what got them to the Super Bowl. Here's the thing. A lot of times um, we watch a football game and, and if you've ever been to a game, it's all exciting and everything like that, except that after every single play, they stop and the guys all gather together and they just face each other and they talk for a while. And this goes on for like 30 seconds. No one knows what they're talking about. I think they're exchanging recipes or something like that. <laughs> they, they talk and then they go and they run a play and then they come back and what do they do? They huddle again, right? And every huddle is like 30 seconds long, and there's like 2 million of them in every game. So you do the math. This is why football games are so long. Between every play, there's a huddle, or almost every play. And so they huddle and huddle and huddle. But how many of you, when you turn on a football game, turn it on to watch the huddles? Nobody, right? You don't care about the huddles. The huddles are not the point, right? The point is what happens in the game. But you know what? In the church... We're not unlike this. We love to huddle. We love to just get together with each other and face inward and put our arms on each other's shoulders and talk about whatever it is that is important to us. And we talk about it and we huddle up and, and we do that on Sunday mornings. Look at, there's a whole bunch of us here huddling right now. We, we have a thing in our church called Grace Groups that some of you know about. Every week we meet with a group of people that we're just supported by and invested in and we huddle up with them. If you're lucky enough to be the right age to be in the young adult ministry, our young adult group has this incredible time where they get together and they just huddle up. Um, we have a men's Bible study that huddles up on Saturday mornings. We have a women's Bible study that huddles up during the week. We have retreats. We just talked about a men's retreat. That's going to be a weekend-long huddle with bacon. That's about as good as it gets. <laughs> We have a women's retreat. They do tea and something. No bacon, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, they're still bacon. Yeah, all right. So, but here's the thing. We're really, really good at huddling. And sometimes we get all excited about our huddles. We say, man, was that ever a good huddle today? 
You, you, get, you go down to Applebee's or Chili's or wherever you go on a Sunday after church, and there's a bunch of other people who came from their huddles too, right? You have to fight them for tables. You know the people I'm talking about? And if you listen in on their conversation, they will be talking about the huddle that they just came from. And they'll be talking about, well, whether it was a good huddle or a bad huddle, and you lean over and you say, hey, you, you don't like your huddle, you should come to our huddle because our quarterback has always got something good to say in the huddle, <laughs> right? And, and as churches, we, we, we even tend to measure our success by the number of people who show up for the huddle. And the interesting thing is that as good as all that huddling is, it's not the point. We don't, we're not here to huddle. We're here because there's a game that needs to be played. But if we're not careful, we can forget that huddling is not the point. The point is that we're supposed to break the huddle and that when we break the huddle, if you ever watch this in a football game, another little tip, pointer for those of you who will be watching your first football game today. Here's the, here's the way that it works. On a football team, they're all pretty big, but some of them are huge and then some of them are like small and fast, right? So when they break the huddle, here's what you're going to notice today. Watch this. You'll be like, wow, Pastor Doug taught me football. Watch this. You're going to see... There are, there are these gigantic, humongous guys that make me look small, humongous guys. We call them big uglies. And the big uglies, they weigh like 375 pounds. And when they break the huddle, the big uglies all go and stand in the front. And the little guys who are fast and athletic, where do they go? Out to the sides, right? Because they're going to run. They're going to take off. And then there's some elite looking guy in the back that is married to a supermodel and <laughs> And he stands in the back and holds the ball. And, and, you know, we talk this Super Bowl, everybody's talking about Tom Brady. Is he the greatest ever? And is he going to win this game and all this kind of stuff? Let me tell you something about Tom Brady. If you get rid of his big uglies, he stinks, right? If you get rid of those guys that run and go out for passes, he can't do any of this, right? Here's the point. Every one of them has, uh, has been designed, physically designed to fit into a certain role that they're supposed to play when the huddle breaks. And when the huddle breaks, they're supposed to get out there and play their role. And you know, the MVP is always a quarterback, isn't it? They just had the honors last night. Who won the MVP, Robbie? Matt Ryan. Uh, and what position does Matt Ryan play? He's an offensive lineman. He's not an offensive lineman. He's a quarterback. From now on, I will not call him Robbie. Um, and... And the quarterbacks always win. They're the, the awards. They're the ones who get on the cereal boxes and get all the commercials and marry the supermodels, right? But here's the deal. Without those other guys, he can do nothing. He gets in the huddle and he huddles up and he talks to them and he teaches them and he corrects them and he tells them where to go and what to do. But if they don't go out and do the things they're supposed to do, then he's absolutely meaningless. And in the church, we just have this idea that we love to huddle. If we could just huddle, it's nice and safe. Everybody in our huddle is wearing the same color uniform. No bad guys in our huddle. Nobody who's going to come in and bother us or do anything to hurt us or get in the way of what we're trying to do. We're all on the same side. And we love to huddle. But you know what? There's a world out there that's watching the church, and they couldn't possibly care less about our huddles. In fact, they're baffled by the whole thing. They go, why do you do this? Why would you get up early on a Sunday morning? Why would you miss the early morning football game? To gather together with a bunch of people, sing songs, and listen to some guy talk. 
Why would you do that? And you know what? I don't blame him a bit. That's exactly how I would feel if I wasn't on the team and in the huddle. Makes total sense to me. They're right. The truest test of a team is when they break the huddle, the individual players go out and run the plays so that they can advance the purpose of the team. Listen, God has nothing against the church huddling up. In fact, He commands us to do it. He says, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. He tells us that we're supposed to love one another, encourage one another, uh, admonish one another, teach one another, pray for one another, and the list of one another's goes on and on and on. He calls us to be invested in one another. But here's the thing. When Jesus came to the end of his time on earth, after the resurrection, when he was about to ascend into heaven and and they were going to have no more direct access to Jesus physically, he had some famous last words for them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You shall be my witnesses. And then he leaves. He says to his church, listen, it's great to be in a huddle, but I didn't call you just to huddle up. I called you to actually get out there and share the love that I've been sharing with people with others. As Christians, we're supposed to represent Jesus wherever we are. And that should go way beyond our political affiliations. It should go way beyond our bumper stickers. It should go way beyond where our car is parked on a Sunday morning. It should go to wherever we are. We're actually supposed to love people who are not like us. Let me say that again because it's so radical. We're supposed to love people who are not like us. People who don't look like us, people who don't think like us, people who don't share our lifestyle, people who don't act like us. Those are the people that we're called to love, which is exactly what Jesus did, right? What did you see Jesus doing again and again and again when he walked the earth? He was with lepers, he was with prostitutes, he was with the downcasts, the beggars, the blind, everybody who was outcast, that's the people that he spent the most time with. He invested heavily in people that weren't like him. We're supposed to love people. Wherever God's people are, the verse says Jerusalem, that's the holy city, right? And then Judea is the surrounding area in which Jerusalem is is placed. It would be like a county to us. So Jerusalem would be like, say, Los Angeles, and Judea would be Los Angeles County, right? So Jerusalem, Judea, even to Samaria. Now, Samaria is the bordering area. I don't know, that would be like the Inland Empire or something like that. And, and, And here's the thing about Samaria. They hate the people in Samaria. The people in Samaria are not like them. In fact, the people in Samaria are despised people. Samaritan people, if you don't know this, basically at that time, what happened was a group of Jewish people sort of of broke off from Israel and from Judaism, and they began to intermarry with Gentiles. And what, what came of that is a race called the Samaritan people. And the Samaritan people basically clung to some of Judaism and also paganism, and they married the two together. So they would worship the one true God in some ways, and then they would worship pagan gods in other ways. Sound familiar? Okay, that's kind of like um, what was happening in Samaria. To the Jews, the Samaritans were disgusting. They were to be avoided at all costs. You were not to cross over into Samaria. If you even walked on Samaritan dirt, you had to have your feet scrubbed and your sandals scrubbed before you came back onto Jewish land. That's how much they despise these people. 
You didn't talk to them. You weren't nice to them. You didn't do anything for them. You stayed as far away from them as possible. We're supposed to love God's people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Facebook, Twitter, wherever we find those people. And as always, Jesus is our great example. If you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of John. Fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Go to John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. This is a well-known story to some of you, but I'm going to just share it with you. In in chapter 4, verse 3, here's what it says, speaking of Jesus. And he left Judea, remember Jerusalem, Judea, and what is it border? Samaria. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So without drawing you a map, just look up here and I'll show you. This is Judea. This is Galilee, and in between is Samaria. So if you want to go from Judea, where good Jews are, down to Galilee, where other good Jews are, you have to somehow get there. And it says in verse, what is it, 4? He had to pass through Samaria. And I've talked about this many times, so I won't go on about it, but here's what you need to know, that that for a Jewish person who had to go from Judea to uh, Galilee, they would not normally pass through Samaria. They would take many hours and walk all the way around Samaria because God forbid they should have to talk to a Samaritan person. And so the prejudice was so great that they would go all the way around Samaria and then coming back, they would go all the way around again so they don't have to pass through Samaria and deal with any of that riffraff. Okay? So Jesus, it says here, had to go through Samaria. Well, in one sense, he did not have to go through Samaria. He could have taken the route that everybody else takes. What made him have to go through Samaria? He loved Samaritans. That was it. He had to go through Samaria because there were people there who he came to touch. And so we pick it up in verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She has a very legitimate question. Let me tell you a little bit about this lady. First of all, the passage tells us it was about the sixth hour. And, and the sixth hour is 12 noon. So Jesus is, is in the heat of the day, and he enters into this land, and he sends his disciples off to go and buy some food because they haven't eaten. And he waits there by the well. And while he's waiting there by the well, there's a woman that comes out, and they bump into each other, if you will, which is a very strange happening. And here's why. Samaritan women do not come to the well at the sixth hour in the heat of the day to draw water for their families. In every place where I have been around the world where they, there is not um, good irrigation and running water and indoor plumbing, they have to have some sort of place where the whole village goes to get their water, right? 
And in, I've never seen it in any other way. Perhaps it's different in some places, but in every village I've ever been in, in a third world country, it is the job of the women of the village in the early morning hours to go out to the place where the water is and to draw water for their family for the day. And I'm always astonished, it doesn't matter how much time I spend in Africa, I am always astonished to watch these 75-pound old women carrying a huge, huge bucket of water on their head and one in each hand and walking sometimes miles from village to well and from well to village. It's an astonishing thing. But in every culture I've ever seen, the women go in the early morning hours and if there's a need, they go again at dusk and then they come back. Nobody goes in the heat of the day to do this. And frankly, what happens in these, in these places is that the women come from all these various different directions and they end up there at the well and it's kind of like a Starbucks. They, they all sort of arrive and, and they're women, right? So they chat with each other and they catch up and they talk about whatever and they go, is your husband still a creep? Yeah, my husband's still a creep too. And they talk about that and they fill up the water and then they get the water filled up and they head back, Right? All of the women are always there at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. It's noon, and this woman comes. Why didn't she come at 6.30 with everybody else? Well, if you continue reading the story, you'll find out uh, she's not welcome with everybody else. She's looked down upon even by the Samaritans. Her lifestyle is such that even the Samaritans are shocked and dismayed at the way that she lives, and they don't want anything to do with her. And frankly, she doesn't want anything to do with them either because she, by now, is sick of the whispering and sick of the rolled eyes and sick of the gossip and sick of the way that when she walks up to a group, they all stop talking. She's been there. She's done that. She's coming out now at noon when nobody else is there, and she's shocked to find this guy there because not only is he a man, very strange, but he's a Jew, even stranger in Samaria, and he's a rabbi. And so here's Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, this righteous man of God, and he's sitting there by Jacob's well, and this woman comes up, and he speaks to her. And she's astonished. And all she can say to him is, why are you talking to me? Don't you know that I'm a Samaritan and a woman? As a Jew, you don't talk to a Samaritan. As a, as a man, you're not going to uh, engage a woman like this. And, and if you knew anything about my background and my history and the kind of woman that I am, you wouldn't want any of your friends to know you're talking to somebody like me. And that's the way their conversation begins. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a notorious sinner. He is a righteous male Jewish rabbi. She expected to be treated like dirt by him. And she expected it because that's what she was used to. Religious bigotry, misogyny, racial prejudice, a holier-than-thou attitude. That's what she dealt with all the time in her life. And you might be thinking, well, it's not fair for her to just assume that he's going to act like that. But you know what? She had an entire life to help her to understand how she should expect Jewish men to treat her. And they had treated her always with disrespect. Look at it from her point of view. She had encountered racial prejudice her whole life. She had been looked down upon by Jews for not keeping the law in the way that they think she should keep the law and not worshiping in the place that, she, that they think she should worship. She's been used by men. We find out later in the chapter, she's been used by men and discarded again and again and again and again to the point where it's a lifestyle for her. 
It was perfectly reasonable for her to expect a male Jewish rabbi to treat her with disrespect. Let me try to bring it into focus for you in a way that some of you might be able to grasp a little bit better. Um, I saw a movie, I rarely recommend movies in the pulpit, but I'll recommend this one. I saw a movie a couple weeks ago called Hidden Figures. Have any of you seen it? It's really good. Um, and, and it's about uh, these three women who were key in the space program in the early 60s. Now, this is Langley, Virginia in the 60s. The South in the 60s, three African-American women who work for NASA. And in the beginning of the movie, you see them in their beautiful 57 Chevy. And they're off on the side of the road because they have broken down. And having broken down on the side of the road, they're trying to figure out how to get their car going when they look up and they see a police car coming up behind them to pull over. Now, if you were broken down on the side of the road and a police car came up behind you to to pull over behind you, wouldn't you see that as a good thing? They didn't. And the reason was because there were three African-American women in the South in 1964. And they're on the side of the road And this white police officer pulls up behind them and immediately you see the fear on their faces. Immediately, there begins to be panic in their voice. Immediately, they begin to talk about a plan. What should we do? What should we do? And they have to calm themselves down because he's walking up. They are expecting to be mistreated by this guy. And it's only when they show them their NASA credentials that he says, oh my goodness, I had no idea that NASA was hiring. And the lady says, women? And he says, yeah, women. And finding out they work for NASA, he actually escorts them to NASA. It gives them a ride because now they're a different quality of person in his mind. See, they expected to be treated a certain way because they grew up in the South in the first part of the 20th century. They knew what they were going to get. This woman expected to be mistreated. She expected this Jewish rabbi not to love her. And you know what? A whole bunch of people in our culture today expect Christians to disrespect them, to dishonor them, to to mock them on social media, to look down upon them because they either don't come to church often enough or, or they have habits in their lives or they're tempted in ways that we're not tempted, whatever the issue is. People expect Christians to treat them in a bad way sometimes. And so, you know, if you are a person of color, you have experience with racial prejudice. You just do. If you're a woman, you know what it's like perhaps to be disrespected in the workplace just because you happen to be female. If you're not religious, you probably know what it's like to be judged by people who are religious and follow a set of rules that you don't happen to follow. And if you're, if you're one of those people and you're guilty of a particularly embarrassing sin that that religious people really look down upon, like, I don't know, being a Samaritan or being a woman or being an adulterer or something like that, then you expect to be disrespected. But when people meet Jesus, they're always astonished, not by his rules, but by his kindness and his love. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't tell them the truth. 
If we had time to go through this whole chapter, you would see this uh, interplay that goes on between them and, and Jesus and this woman talk, and it comes out. He says, you know, hey, why don't you bring your husband out? I'd like to meet him. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, no, you've spoken well that you don't have a husband, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband, and neither were the five guys you were living with before that. And he sort of gives her the whole thing and says, I know your story. And so he tells her the truth. But he does it in such a way that he's showing her respect, he's showing her honor, he's holding up her dignity, and he's treating her like, who knows, maybe she could actually have some worth anyway. I heard someone say recently that if you want to get a good picture of yourself, look at the reflection in Jesus' eyes when he looks at you. There's a way that he sees us that are about love and grace and compassion, and encouragement. So he tells her the truth, and he offers her living water, and he confronts her about her sinful lifestyle, but he did all of that with love and respect. And I love her response as they have this conversation. Skip down to verse 19. After she tells him all these things that he couldn't possibly know about her private life, her sex life, he talks about. She says to him, look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, you think? And she begins then to ask him questions of a spiritual nature. She says, you know, I've always wanted to ask somebody. I really want to connect with God. I really want to worship God, but I don't know how. The Jews say we have to do it like this, and the Samaritans say we have to do it like this. Some say this path leads to heaven, and others say this path leads to heaven. And frankly, I'm confused, and I really don't know what to, to do about it, but I've never had anybody I could ask because nobody would ever engage me like this. And she begins to ask him questions of a spiritual nature, and he begins to give her this living water, this, this fulfillment that comes. See, here's the deal. She's used to coming to that well every day in the heat of the day to avoid the crowd so she can get water. Why? Because every day she gets thirsty. Every day she needs water. And it's worth it to, get, to walk in the heat of the day to get out there and get that water because otherwise you'll die, right, of thirst. You need water. Here's what's happening in our culture today, and we need to understand this. There's a million wells out there that basically are saying, come to this well and you'll be satisfied, right? And those wells have all kinds of names. And people go to this well, and they find that it's not satisfying, at least not for long. And then they go to this well, and they find that it dries up after a while. And they go to this well, and they find it's not satisfying. This one was great for a while, but then it just sort of petered out. And people begin to realize that no matter where I go, I keep guzzling whatever the world has to offer me, and I'm still empty, and I'm still thirsty, and it's not fulfilling. And Jesus says to her, I know what that's like. Let me tell you something. I could give you living water so you'll never thirst again. Spiritual life so you won't die. And she's fascinated by this. And they have this conversation. He introduces himself to her as the Messiah, the one who came to save her. Not to judge her, not to hate her, not to disrespect her, not to put her in a group with those other people, but to save her. He came to love her. And when she hears that, she's blown away. And she observes his love and his kindness and his respect. And yes, the truth. She knew he must be from God. And that's when she started asking those questions. And then skip down to verse 28. We'll pick it up there. So the woman left her water pot 
and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? She actually leaves him there. She just drops her water pots and runs into the village. And when she gets to the village, just finds whoever she can find. This is a woman who stays away from people, who doesn't go into the village. She rushes into the village and she says, everyone, everyone, listen. I think I just found the Messiah. You have to come and see. I mean, he told me things I never could have imagined. You've got to come and see. And she brings the whole village out to him. And the Bible says that he spends a couple of days with that crowd and just answers their questions, and loves them, and heals them, and prays for them, and cares for them. And by the time Jesus and his men leave Samaria and finally end up in Galilee, guess what? The church has been planted in Samaria. And the world has been changed for these people. Because somebody decided to look past the prejudice, to look past the, the, the differences, and to look past all of the judgment and to say, I am here to connect you to God and help you to see him for who he is. So let me just take a second and say this as I get ready to wrap up. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, with all sincerity from the bottom of my heart, on behalf of Christians, if you've been treated with disrespect and dishonor and looked down upon and judged by Christians... I apologize because we Christians are, well, hypocrites. We're not there yet. We have this view of how life should be and how we should be walking with God, but we're struggling ourselves. And there's not one of us who is perfect, and, and, it's, and the, the world is quick to point out that the churches are filled with hypocrites, right? And so I just want to say, listen, we're weak and struggling and fallible and all those kinds of things, but not Jesus. The Christians that you have met that may have, that may have um, been judgmental and narrow-minded and hateful and all those kinds of things, that's not Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. So yeah, he'll tell you the truth, but he will love you and give you grace. The truth is we're all lost without him. Grace is he's made a way for us to have that living water that we can have forever. He sees you where you are. He sees you warts and all, and he loves you anyway. The grace and acceptance and love that he offers is life-changing. And he came to set captives free. He came to set prisoners free, not to stand outside the prison and laugh at them. He offers you that same forgiveness that he's always offered everyone who's caught up in sin. He has a vision for your life, and it is greater than your wildest imagination could fathom. And he loves you enough to offer it to you, and it comes free of charge because he's already paid the price. He left the throne of heaven, and he hung on a cross to pay the price for our sin, not because he wants to judge us, but because he loves us, and he wants to not judge us. That's why Christians love to huddle. That's why we love to rejoice. That's why, you know, I just, for the most part, can't help myself. I sit up here every week and my eyes fill with tears as we sing songs of praise to God for how great He is. And I think of what a wretched sinner I am and how much I deserve His judgment. And I think about His grace and my hands go up and my tears roll down my cheeks. And I sing through a broken voice, amazing grace, 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me because that's who my God is. And you know what? We have to remember something, church. The huddles are great, but life is not meant to be lived in the huddle. And when you get to heaven, you'll be able to worship Him. You'll be able to praise Him. You'll be able to fellowship with your other Christian friends. You know what you won't be able to do? You won't be able to love people who don't know Jesus. You won't be able to care for people who are hurting and lost and in pain because there won't be any hurt or pain or lostness there. He's left us here to be a light in this world, not to be judges. Here's the thing, guys. The world is full of women at the well. Full of women at the well who desperately need to meet somebody who is full of grace and truth. Women at the well... Men at the well, old people at the well, children at the well, that well, and that well, and that well, and that well, and they all need the same thing, to actually know their creator, the one who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them. There is nobody we should be unwilling to love by the power of God. And when we start to live like that, people will stand up and take notice we start to live like that, they will ask us questions because we'll no longer be seen as judges, we'll be seen as helpers, as people who care. And when they begin to ask questions, they'll be introduced to the gospel of Jesus that He loves us so much that He wants to set us free from our sin. And His grace is irresistible. His love is overwhelming. And yes, the truth is, apart from His grace and apart from His love, we are lost and helpless. But He came to set us free. We prayed for these children this morning. That's what I pray they will become. They will become people who stop at the well and talk with people who don't look like them and share with people who have need, even though they don't owe them anything. And they will not stand on an ivory tower wagging their finger at people, but they will come down and get down in the dirt and the muck where hurting people are, and they will minister to those people. I see Will and Charlotte and the other children that are in that room today. I see them growing up to be a mighty army of God's people who are full of grace and full of truth. Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. And when people meet people like that, they are astonished. And they are drawn to the one who can transform lives, Jesus. And more captives are set free every day. Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth. And as his people, we should be too.